You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunn. That's right. Uh, you're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast. A somewhat tardy episode, if we do say so ourselves. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from ESPN.com, and I gotta say, it feels a little weird to be here, frankly. It's it's Tuesday, it's about 1 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, Mountain Standard Time, the only time zone, really. The one come, true time zone. When it comes right down to it, and we are just now getting around to recording the CME about a day later than we normally do, because this is the first time that the other co-host... Uh, ben Folks from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com has been able to squeeze us into his busy schedule. All right, hey, no, I'll take the I'll take the heat for this one. I ben, deserve it. Ben, do you uh, do you feel like explaining yourself? Do you have anything okay. to say for yourself? I, first off, I apologize to the loyal listeners of the CME. This is my fault. Uh, I was forced to attend the wedding of an old friend in California this past weekend. And due to the the vagaries of air travel and of trying to get around uh, uh, in the situation surrounding this wedding, I wasn't able to get back into town until very late on Monday night. So here we are. It's a little bit weird to say you were forced to attend a wedding. That makes it sound like it wasn't necessarily the happiest affair. Well, no, I mean, it was it was a fun wedding and everything. But, you know, it's one of those things where it's one thing if your friend invites you to his wedding uh, and you feel like you kind of have an option when he puts you in the wedding as a groomsman, then you kind of got to go. Yeah, it, no, I've been there. It forces your hand a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and especially it forces your hand to go put on a three-piece suit and stand out in 100-degree temperatures in California wine country all afternoon. Uh, but fortunately, That does sound like a rough assignment. <laughs> fortunately, uh, several of my uh, friends from high school got drunk before the ceremony even started. So it was an awesome time for everybody. Wow, sounds like sort of a Montana-style wedding if there was people boozing it up before, All like we, on the way to the event. Oh, yeah. All we were missing was a barn. <laughs> well, it's good to have you back uh, for the first time in a long time. It's fight week as uh, UFC 152, finally, it feels like, emanates from the Air Canada Center in Toronto on Saturday night. And as usual, that means... We've got plenty to talk about on this episode of the CME. As usual as well, today's show will be in three rounds. Round number one, the anatomy of an execution. Somehow, (laughs) Stefan Bonner will now fight Anderson Silva in the main event of UFC 153 next month, month in Rio de Janeiro. In round two... There are actually other fights on this weekend's UFC 152 card besides the much maligned light heavyweight title fight between John Jones and Vitor Belfort, and we will talk about a couple of them. Specifically, I think we're going to talk about the flyweight title fight between Joseph Benavidez and Demetrius Johnson, as well as the possible middleweight title eliminator between Michael Bisping and Brian Stan. In round three, what's in a Bentley? the UFC, the MMA power structure, and the politics of gift-giving. We will talk about all of that and more, but first, listener mail. As usual, this week we sent out the call for your questions, comments, concerns, uh, and you responded fairly well. We actually got a lot of good questions this week. It was actually yeah, tough uh, to choose. It was hard to choose this week which one, uh, and which questions we wanted to ask. Isn't it always a, a answer, real a real bitch when we get a bunch of good questions on the week where we also have a bunch to talk about? Yeah, just anyway. So That's true. Uh, if we're not answering your question, which is going to be the case for most of you who sent questions in, it's not because we didn't like your question or we don't like you. It's just because damn, it, it was a rough field this week. So uh, don't feel bad about that. First question this week comes from Dakota Shepard, uh, who, had I not been a local sports reporter in Missoula, Montana for a few years, I might, I might be suspicious that Dakota Shepard wasn't a guy's actual name, but because I covered more than a few high school wrestling tournaments, I know that there are actually scores and scores of dudes out there named stuff like Dakota Shepard. Sounds like an awesome rodeo name. Yeah, me? Chance Bailey, stuff like that. <laughs> God, you don't want to wind up in the 125-pound match against Chance Bailey. <laughs> he will school you via technical fall. Um, Dakota Shepard asks... What one rule in MMA would you both choose to change if you were given the almighty hammer of justice? Mm, and I can only have one, huh? Just one. I got the hammer of justice for one rule and one rule only. Well, you know, in times past, I would have said knees to the head of a grounded opponent. Uh, however, when I look at how that situation usually played out in pride, 
Uh, I'm not so sure that I would really like it in action as much as I would like it in theory. I do think it changes the sport a little bit uh, and uh, in some good ways, but also in just some kind of gross, untoward ways. So I'll compromise a bit on that stance. And I'll say I would change the rule that having your hand down on the mat makes you a downed opponent who cannot be kneed in the head. I think that is bullshit, how you can just put two fingers down on the mat like you know you're in a fake three-point stance for a junior high football photo uh and suddenly we can't knee in the head i i think that's bullshit we ought to do away with that uh so we'll keep ground you cannot knee to the head of an actual grounded opponent if he has a knee on the mat but just having your hand down on the mat i do not think qualifies you as a grounded opponent okay yeah i'm not going to argue with that i think that's a that's a good rule change now here's what i'm going to do because we briefly discussed having a different question uh on this on the podcast from Scott Pfeiffer, who is a guy who who is a frequent emailer of the podcast, asking us about open scoring in MMA. But you didn't want to do it because you took issue with the way the question was phrased. You're you're simplifying uh, what I said. What I said was that uh, in the context of all the questions, I felt like that one was kind of a yes or no question. He was just asking, do you think we'll ever also not only was it a yes or no question, it was like a crystal ball question. Right. Do we think we'll ever get to the point where they do the thing where we announce the judges' scores after each round? Uh, so you're asking me to say yes or no about a future prediction, which I don't feel makes for the most interesting questions. No Fair. offense to Scott Pfeiffer. Fair enough, but as a way to still inject that into the conversation, I'm going to say... And be a dick about it, apparently. Even though I haven't fully thought it through, which I think you will find is often the case on this show, uh, I'm going to say I might I might change the rules so we'd have open scoring. I think it's an interesting idea that uh, if you had to post, uh, if the judges all posted their, their scores, like on a scoreboard or something, uh, during the fight, which is, is something you know that you see in amateur wrestling, or that you know everybody knows what the score is. Uh, it, it could change things, and I think you know it might change things for the better. You might uh, see some guys show a little bit more urgency in a fight, and uh, and it might clear up a lot of the uh, questions about what what judges are actually watching or what's going on. It also, if we're gonna get crazy about it, might actually give the ring girls something useful to do. They could walk around with a sign that has the score on it. Wow. Rather than just telling you what round it is, which you should fucking know unless you're an idiot. Especially when there's only three. Like in <laughs> boxing, you can make the argument that, hey, man, you get up there into round 9, 10, 11. Yeah, they blur together for you. You've yeah. had a beer every round, probably. Yeah. And so, no, yeah, you, you could make that. But, you know, I'm trying to think of another sport where it's like MMA, where you don't know what the score is until the very end. Like even... When I'm watching the Olympics and watching synchronized diving, they get to know the score after each dive. Right. You know, it's not like you do like six or seven dives and then we tell you who won. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking, I guess the only argument I could think of against it is that in, in a, you know, it might spoil some of the surprise, I guess, at the end. They like to get but the guys in there. it's kind of shitty surprise most of the time. Yeah, that's true. And in a fight, uh, in a fight where it's close enough that you wouldn't know the decision going into the last round, I suppose you would still have the suspense of finding out how the judges scored that final round. It'd be like after the end of four years of college, then they tell you whether or not you're going to get it. They tell you the grades that you got in all your classes for the past four years and whether or not you're going to get a degree. And they'd be like, surprise! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't be like, oh, uh, I don't want to remove this element of surprise. That's kind of how it was for me anyway. Sort of like a right down to the wire affair. Uh, question question number two this week comes from Alex Newfie, who asks, if you were an 8-0 fighter offered a tough contract, a Bellator tourney spot, or strike force contract, which would you take? Now this, this is a good question. This I is like a very this question. good question. One of the better questions we've been asked so far at I, the I podcast. Should, yeah, and I should point out that I asked Alex Newfie for permission to use this on the podcast because he originally asked it for my Twitter mailbag, oh. uh, which, by the way... So that explains why it was so good. Yeah. He didn't actually mean it for us. Well, hit me, hit me up on Twitter, Ben Folks MMA, uh, for your own Twitter mailbag uh, question. comes out every Thursday on MMA Junkie. Um, but... He also asked another good one uh, for the Twitter mailbag that I wanted to use last week. So I asked him for permission to use this one on the podcast, uh, and, and he consented. It's a very good question because it forces us to, like, there's no super obvious answer to this, I feel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it forces you to uh, maybe admit to some biases uh, about how we see the MMA world, but also to to think long term uh, for a fighter like if you did find yourself in that situation and I like the specification that it's an 8-0 fighter like not somebody like somebody who could maybe 
turn out to be somebody important, but we've seen plenty of 8-0 fighters get in the UFC and never go anywhere. Sure. So it's how great do you feel your chances are. It also uh, kind of depends on what weight class you're in because uh, depends a lot if on you're an 8-0 heavyweight, that's pretty good. Like yeah. you, might, you might be thinking about getting into the UFC anyway if you beat some quality opponents, but if you're an 8-0 like a lightweight or welterweight, yeah, you need like 10 more wins. I say we first just give our short answer and okay. then explain our reasoning behind okay. it. I'll go first. I say... Tough contract. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, too. Damn Tough it. contract. I was hoping you were going to say something else so I could argue with you. You know, the thing is... Well, maybe we can argue about our reasoning since okay. I haven't heard yours yet. The tough contract, I feel like, A, odds are you're going to be in there with a few shitty guys. Yeah. Uh, you have, So you have a pretty good chance of standing out and looking awesome in comparison to those few shitty guys. If you have any personality whatsoever... Uh, you can turn yourself into a pretty marketable commodity by being, you know, pretty good and also, you know, not completely boring. Uh, maybe you wear a silly hat. Who knows? Maybe yeah, you dye your have a pink mohawk. <laughs> there I don't you know. go. Yeah. Just I'm just spitballing. Right. Um, and the thing about the tough contract is you enter into the UFC usually under not the greatest contract. Right. Uh, whether you win it or you lose it, whatever. Um, but. The opportunity for you to make a lot more money up front from sponsorships and from like appearances and going places and you know showing up for a sponsor and signing autographs and that kind of stuff, um, and to get a little more of a uh, a slower introduction into the U- life in the UFC right. competition wise, uh, especially if you win it, that all I feel like is worth the short term sacrifices both of you know the contract that you enter into. And the pain in the ass of being in the house. Because honestly, right. you talk to those guys about the experience of being in that house and filming the show. And it's like a goddamn prison sentence. They, they all talk about it with just you know, like this loathing. So you got to factor that part in. Yeah, for me, it was almost a process of elimination a little bit. Because nobody really wants us to be the strike force. Like if you're an 8-0 fighter... And you you can choose between these three things. Like nobody wants to wind up in strike force. Yeah, then nobody you're wants to get locked down in strike force. So really, it comes down between tough contract and Bellator tournament spot. And I was gonna go contract tough contract because I think even if you're in the house, if you're on if you're, if you're on the Ultimate Fighter, the worst case scenario is maybe you get knocked off and you you don't wind up being in the UFC because when you look at uh, when you look at the last few seasons at least. The, the the percentage of guys that actually stick and become UFC regulars is not really that high. Yeah. It's like 30% or something. Uh, but even if you just go on the show, you're on the, the whole season, uh, hopefully you don't make a complete ass of yourself. You become sort of a sort of a, mod- a marketable commodity, like you said. Hopefully We're, nobody pees in your fruit yeah, tray. exactly. But uh, worst case scenario is... You get knocked off the show. You don't get an immediate UFC contract, but you sort of become marketable on the independent circuit. Right. And like, you know, you can probably go then main event smaller shows. Maybe you get a Bellator tourney spot off of that. Yeah, you could get a Bellator tournament spot anyway. So I would say tough contract, probably the the best answer out of those three, even though, you know, what we found out this week about the tough ratings and stuff, maybe it's not that, that great of a thing anyway. Um, last question this week comes from Grant who says Dana White has recently stated that he is all for instant replay for fights. What are your thoughts on how this would affect the dynamic of a fight or the entire event? And I suppose this question implies that Grant did not in fact see the article that I wrote on ESPN.com this week <laughs> about instant replay and fights because it, the it, fuck is your problem, Grant? You don't read Chad's stuff on ESPN. It kind of got some traction this week after Dana went on inside MMA and said that, um, and you know, it sounded like it was sort of part of a larger conversation, but uh, my, my response to the initial question is that I think instant replay in fights is something that sounds really good until you actually start to think about it. Like, I think if you say, as Dana White said, hey, man, I think we need instant replay in fights, that's a pretty easy thing for everybody in the world to be like, oh, yeah, we totally do need instant replay <laughs> in fights until you start thinking about how this is this would actually work out. And I actually I called Keith Kaiser from the Nevada State Athletic Commission because I knew that they already did have instant replay in some very limited circumstances for MMA in Nevada, dating back all the way to 2009. So I asked him a little bit about it. Why don't we see why don't we see it used more and why don't they have a like a broader application for instant replay in MMA? And the thing that he told me that I think really started to make sense after I thought about it, it was that in combat sports it sounds really good to, to have instant replay, but when, but like when and where would you use it yeah. is the real problem. And and once you start to think about that, I think you start to realize that uh, instant replay might not be the greatest idea because even if you just think like 
how much people freak the fuck out now when like there's a break in the action or when a referee makes a bad <laughs> yeah. call. So we get kicked in the balls. We stop for 45 seconds and the booze start up immediately. Yeah. So like, what are you going to do for instant replay? Are you going to stop a fight in the middle of the round and be like, Hey, I got to check out that eye poke. See if it was a punch or an eye poke could take five minutes. I don't know, but yeah. we'll be back. Not to mention like, let's say a guy gets hit super hard and gets kind of dazed and you stop the fight to check out if it was an eye poke. And it turns out it wasn't an eye poke. You essentially just screwed the dude who had the upper hand in that instance. And the other instance that you think about is, do you look in between rounds, which is sort of like almost even worse because then you get into the point where maybe you're retroactively going back and changing things that you thought you had called earlier. Like say like a low blow. If you were like, Hey, it turns out, that wasn't really a low blow. So after I took that point away from fighter A, I'm giving it back now. Yeah. So fighter B, I hope you didn't think you won that round because you <laughs> well, didn't. See, yeah. It, the the thing I think we, we don't think about is that we think just how it works in football, which football is the perfect sport for instant replay yeah. because there's so many stops and right. breaks in the action anyway that it doesn't really significantly hamper the flow of the game or anybody's strategy yeah. to stop and make sure you got a call right. And there's also uh, is, there's a lot more yes or no right like black or white questions that you can answer with a replay in football. Did the guy get two feet down? Did the ball cross the goal line? Either it did or it didn't. If we're looking at a guy's eye poke and saying was that intentional or not, you know, there's really that's still going to be a judgment call no matter what you do, unless you know somehow in the replay we see him doing the three stooges uh, two finger eye poke and we missed it live, but. I feel like, uh, you know, stoppages is kind of the one, you know, stoppage on something that could have been a foul. You know, if it was a guy gets knocked out by a knee as he's kind of fallen down and we don't know if his knee touched the mat uh, or if, you know, he caught him on the way down. That's the, the those limited kind of circumstances where I think you can use replay effectively, like if the fight has stopped anyway. Right. Uh, and to reiterate, maybe I didn't make this clear, but that actually is the one instance that you can already use instant replay for a fight in Nevada. They used and it for it, the Matt Hamill, yeah, it's uh, been, John Jones fight, I talked right? When I talked to Keith Kaiser, it's been legal since 2009, but in fact, the John Jones-Matt Hamill fight was the only fight he could even think of where it had been used in Nevada. And, and then they just used it to confirm... They called that it was an illegal elbow, right? Uh, and that one was you know screwed up for different reasons because they feel like maybe they didn't totally communicate to with Matt Hamill about what exactly he felt was the cause for the stoppage and right. you know and whether that elbow should even be illegal to begin with. So that one did not necessarily quell any controversy. But I think yeah, we don't necessarily think about what it would actually be like uh, to to stop and go back over some of this stuff because when you pause a fight. Uh, in the middle of a round, you change the entire fight, no matter no matter why. You know whether it's justified stop it, stoppage or pause or, or whatever. As soon as you step in there and say, "Time out, stop beating each other up," the fight has changed, and that's not true with like you know football or something. Right. Well, that's listener mail for this week. If you have a question or comment that you want aired or answered on a future week of the podcast, you can contact us by going to our website, comaineventpodcast.com, and and clicking the handy link at the top of the page that says email the podcast. That will help you out. Uh, But right now, you're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast with Chad Dundas and Ben Folks, and round one starts now. Ben, somehow when the main event and co-main event of UFC 153 both were scratched in recent days, we ended up with Anderson Silva versus Stefan Bonner as the main event of UFC 153 in Rio de Janeiro in early October. Uh, I guess I'm just going to start off by asking you, what the fuck, man? (laughs) What's that all about? Okay, here's, here's, I think... Interesting quotes uh, from a story on MMA Junkie today by uh, my colleague Matt Erickson, who talked to Stefan Bonner kind of about his side of how this fight came together. And I think these are, these are interesting things to note for several reasons. Here's the quote from Stefan Bonner. Quote, my manager hit me up and asked how I feel about fighting Glover Teixeira. And I said, you know my rule. If I'm going to do this again, he's got to have more Twitter followers than me. 
I know it sounds cheesy, but it's true. That's how I feel. That's a measure of someone's popularity, and I just want a bigger name. The last three opponents, I've had more Twitter followers than them, and I've beat them, and I feel like I deserve a bigger name now. Then later. So wait, do we know how many Twitter <laughs> followers Stefan Bonner actually has? I'm sure. Here, I'm going to agree. I feel, per- I feel pretty up. safe in saying I'm out of the woods if that's his, uh, <laughs> if that's his qualification. I, I feel like uh, up next, uh, Ashton Kutcher and Lady Gaga had better watch their asses because I don't think this is going to go well for them. But, you know, anyway, that's what he tells his manager when he asks about Glover Teixeira. Then, I got another text from my manager asking how I'd feel about fighting Anderson. And I laughed. Like, yeah, good luck trying to pull that one off. Of course I'd bite Anderson. 2.5 million Twitter followers? Jeez, like this will ever happen. By Thursday night, it was everywhere, and I couldn't believe it. I played a little phone tag Friday and got a hold of UFC President Dana White, and lo and behold, it was true. I think it really set, set in Sunday that I'm fighting Anderson Silva. I'm still a little bewildered. Aren't we all? Yeah. Aren't we all? Uh, fact check. Stefan Bonner has, as of this recording, 53,465 Twitter followers. So, yeah, he, would, he wouldn't fight me and he wouldn't fight you. Would fight Ariel Helwani. Yeah, Helwani is, he better watch his back, I guess. Watch out, Helwani. Uh, but, so, I love, first of all, the, the blunt honesty, the real talk from Stefan Bonner here, uh, where he's just kind of like, yeah... He's at a point in his career where he doesn't even know if he seriously wants to continue fighting all that much. Right. Well, he's sort of coming out of retirement for this almost, yeah. isn't he? Uh, and so then they say, you know, Glover Teixeira, I mean, that would be a big fight. If you were looking at to really, you know, push your career forward, that would be a pretty good one. But no, he's not even interested in that. But then, hey, Anderson Silva, fuck it. Yeah, take, and, and that's kind of the that sums up this entire fight for me. It's a fuck it kind of fight, yeah. which I can appreciate on some level. Sure. And before we go any further, let's just make the point: Stefan Bonner, awesome dude. Yeah, like uh, he, you know, he's a guy that that uh, we don't want to see any harm come to, which is one of the <laughs> one of the reasons why this fight scares me a little bit. I feel like that. Stefan, he ought to get like the Congressional Medal of Freedom or something, like whatever Purple Heart for stepping in to uh, to give his life for the betterment of UFC 153. One of the interesting things to me about this matchup is that I feel like the cancellation of UFC 151 opened this weird like emotional Pandora's box yeah. in the in the sport where now we know that that's possible. Now we've seen that as a reality that an event can just like blip off the radar, just blow away in an instant. So I feel like now uh, we're both meant to feel relieved when they don't cancel an event entirely. And it's kind of like we, we give that we, we, Hey, they were in a tough spot here. And I understand that, but it's, it feels like kind of en masse, the entire MMA media kind of gave them a pass on this one Here's and did it in like a very media kind of way. I want to say in which a bunch of people wrote stories that were like, Hey man, everybody needs to stop complaining about the UFC 153 main event. When in fact, everyone in the media was saying it was fine. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say that you can't complain. You can certainly complain, but here is why I will give them a pass on this one because of circ- and not necessarily a pass, but just say, Hey, given the circumstances, I understand this one. A, it was to save an event and not adding, like, especially if we're going to contrast it with Jones Belfort, where that one was put together for no good reason, tacked on to an event that was already complete and did not need saving, uh, just because for some reason they felt like the light heavyweight title needed to be defended uh, against any living human in the month of September, which I'm sure we'll get to later on in, in this show. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, so... When we contrast it with that, this is one where something had to be done to save an event, especially at a precarious time where the UFC just canceled an event, and they, I'm sure, are feeling sensitive that people are going to be pointing the fingers and saying, what the hell are we buying these tickets for in advance if we don't know what the hell we're going to see when we show up? So you, they've got that hanging over their heads. Then you've got Anderson Silva volunteering to go up and wait for a non-title fight. That, to me is completely different than the champion fighting a smaller guy with the belt on the line. Because the moment you put the belt on the line for a fight that's kind of a fuck-it fight, sure. which the Jones-Belfort one is also in a different way, that's the moment you're telling me, uh, this belt is mainly a prop. It's mainly just a, a, a promotional ticket sales, pay-per-view sales prop. It doesn't really have the intrinsic value that we've spent years telling you that it has. And the, to get the, the contender spot, 
you know, sometimes you got to climb a damn mountain to get it if you're a lightweight. Other times you got to pick up the phone. Uh, so I feel like that's a, a really damaging revelation that <laughs> for the UFC to make, uh, whether they realize it or not. This one, though, non-title fight, champ against a bigger guy to save an event, all three of those together, I think you get away with. As an aside, not that we want to get off on this tangent, but hey, man, you don't jump straight back out there and book John Jones in this totally weird fight against Vitor Belfort at UFC 152 like the week after you canceled that previous event. Maybe you can put John Jones on the UFC 153 card when it falls apart two weeks later. I'm yeah. just saying. I'm just saying. But uh, the question I wanted to ask earlier, how do you think this news would have been – how do you think re response to this news would have been different had – if we weren't just coming off this cancellation, because in, in a way I feel like they had a little bit of political capital built up just to save this event. Like people, yeah. you know, they could have put almost any fight out there. And I feel like people would have, would have thought it was, you know, better than the alternative. Yeah. And I think that is definitely a part of it is the, the climate they're operating in. There's also though, when you compare the last time that Anderson Silva did, uh, or not not the last time even, but uh, remember the the James Irvin fight the the first time that oh, he, I remember he, that he went up to light heavyweight yeah and you were like okay well that one was done uh, just to screw with affliction just to make sure that the oh that's right I the one two that. punch of Fedor Emelianenko and Megadeth performing live was not such a draw that people forgot about the UFC and, and uh, Affliction got ahead of steam so put that together just to, to counter promote them another situation Anderson Silva. Uh, doing the bosses a solid there. Uh, so I think this is definitely more justifiable than that uh, as far as a, a reason to have Anderson Silva go up and, and do one of these things. It's also one of those fights where when you think about it, you've, the combination of, well, Anderson Silva is going to do whatever he wants to Stefan Bonner uh, and you know whatever crazy strikes he can think of or Steven Seagal has taught him lately, he can probably hit Stefan Bonner with him. Yeah. Um, and Stefan Bonner is a tough enough dude with a hard enough head that he can take him, at least for a little while. I don't know if that's necessarily a great thing for Stefan Bonner uh, long term, but uh, that is part of his appeal in this particular fight, let's be honest. Yeah, and it's almost weird to think that as dominant as Anderson Silva has looked at middleweight for the duration of his UFC career, the two appearances that he made at light heavyweight against, as you said, James Irvin and, and against Forrest Griffin also have arguably been his most dominant performances. Yeah. Like the Forrest Griffin one is video game style yeah. in, in his ability to slip punches and then kind of knock Forrest Griffin out with almost like a fade away kind of mm -hmm. like just for fun punch. It looked <laughs> like, uh, but, but, so if if this goes down the way we think it's going to, and Anderson Silva kind of wrecks Stefan Bonner, I I think that that Forrest Griffin fight is probably a, a an advertisement, you know, for what you're going to see in in this fight. Also, uh, this probably only adds fuel to the fire for people who eventually want to see Anderson Silva fight John Jones and or want to see Anderson Silva like try to make a real run at 205. Does it or does it not? Yeah, I, I think that this will definitely only fuel that talk. I, I don't know if it will move us any closer to it in reality. No, probably not. One of the weird things about Silva is, don't you feel, as I do, that whenever we've we've tried to talk about matchmaking situations with Anderson Silva in the recent past, that it seemed like it's pulling teeth to get this guy to fight anybody like we always hear he doesn't want to fight Chris Weidman he doesn't want to fight this guy didn't want to fight Chael Sonnen the second time and then suddenly out of the blue like oh Stefan Bonner absolutely he'll fight him on semi-short notice in Brazil and in a weird non-titled 205 pound fight well hey who would you rather fight if you're Anderson Silva Stefan Bonner or Chris Weidman fair enough fair enough uh to look at a more of a slightly big picture thing, are we reaching the point now uh, where something fundamental is going to have to change about at least the scheduling or something involved in this sport? Or are all these injuries really just dumb fucking luck or whatever what Dana White said about it this, this past week? It seems to me like this instance, maybe since Jose Aldo was out running around on his motorbike and got in an accident, and I think as far as I understand it, eventually suffered an infection in his foot slash ankle area that, that caused this, this fight to be canceled. So maybe this one was just dumb luck, but in terms of like the overall injury landscape, we're past the, the, the dumb luck point as far yes. as I'm concerned. I think we are past the dumb luck 
they, but I think we're also still at the point of what do you do about it? Yeah. Because uh, you can't tell these guys how to train. Uh, you, I guess, could put something in place that where if they do have to pull out of a fight with an injury, it's rougher on them to get another one or that there's some kind of financial penalty. But I think that would just be extremely unpopular. Yeah. I think the best thing that the UFC can do is have enough contingency plans in place with other fighters. Uh, maybe try to build overall stronger cards so that if some stuff does have to be pulled off of it, you still got enough other stuff. But then it's tough to do both those things with the current schedule that they have because it's just a killer fucking schedule. They don't have enough guys to do that and still fill up all these fight cards. Right. I feel like in a way we're beating a dead horse here, but to me the the ultimate answer is to not have so many shows, even if the 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 sheer volume of shows isn't causing the injuries. Like you have half as many shows, suddenly you've got a goddamn myriad of guys who could step in yeah. to to take over when other guys get injured and it's not the way it would be now the way it is now that we're you know everybody's already booked somewhere else uh and i think in a way ufc 153 and ufc 152 both show us the potential of of what cards could look like if there were fewer of them because yeah. while they're both weird cards they're both kind of awesome yeah. in their own ways like ufc 153 i'm just looking at it you you've got Anderson Silva, Stefan Bonner is your main event. Uh, Antonio Rodrigo Nogueira against Dave Herman is your co-main, which is yeah, fun. That's fun. I'll take that. Uh, I'll take then, that walking you know, away. Glover Teixeira versus Fabio Maldonado. You know, Maldonado obviously isn't as big of a name as Rampage Jackson, but that's kind of a sweet fight too, just in terms of, of the kind of style that both guys, both those guys are going to bring. And then you got Eric Silva versus John Fitch. Still flying under the radar, but still going to be a, a really interesting one, I think. Yeah, and, the, and Phil Davis is fighting Wagner Prado, who's a guy who I believe is making his UFC debut. No, Wagner Prado is the guy who got eye-poked uh, by oh. Phil Davis last time. So oh, that's we're right. doing it again, brother. Right. <laughs> we are doing it but, again. But, I mean, I, I think again... And then Damian are... Maya versus Rick Story is the last fight, which is still... Uh, another pretty good one people are quick to point to say hey the too many shows thing is linked to the injuries thing but i think especially if you look at a lot of the recent injury withdrawals you know like dan henderson hadn't fought in almost a year since that shogun fight in november rampage jackson hadn't fought since uh february in in tokyo yeah uh jose aldo i mean he got hit by a damn car uh so it's hard to look at at least some of those recent ones and say that those guys were forced back into training too soon or had to push it too hard too fast uh, because of the, the schedule. It was right, that you did right. not have enough available guys to replace them. Uh, yeah. That's the, the consequence of too many shows. Also, on the side note about Josie Aldo being hit by a damn car. Uh, I've talked about this before with motorcycle enthusiast Tim Kennedy on Twitter, who always is going to get on my ass whenever I say professional athletes probably shouldn't ride motorcycles. Yeah, I'll say this, though. If you are going to be a professional athlete riding a motorcycle... Better to do it in the United States than in Rio de Janeiro, from what I've seen. Because in Rio de Janeiro, although there are a ton of people zipping around on motorcycles, there are also a ton of people driving their cars without even bothering to look in the rearview mirror or flip on a a turn signal or even pay attention to where the lanes are. Uh, It's a different environment driving-wise, just from my own personal observations. And you could not pay me to get on a motorcycle in that environment. I mean, you're just playing a deadly game of Frogger every time you do it. So no thank you. Well, that probably wraps up our discussion from round number one. Before we get started in round number two, though, it's time for probably the most self-explanatory recurring uh, feature here on the podcast. Are you fucking kidding me? Uh, Today, I'll just go ahead and lead it off. This week, my are you fucking kidding me is, are you fucking kidding me? Tough ratings. We found out this week that the debut episode of the second season of The Ultimate Fighter on FX pulled in a grand total of 947,000 viewers. Uh, that is the worst debut in the in the history of the series and down from 1.3 million people who t- tuned in for the debut of the live tough during its last season. I feel like more people probably fucking watched Storage Wars this week than turned in for the debut season of The Ultimate Fighter. But still, I guess we're just going to keep cranking this thing out one season after another, never making any changes, just feeling like we get two new coaches and put it on a new night and everything is going to be fine. Are you fucking kidding me, me, tough ratings? Fucking kidding me? My Are You Fucking Kidding Me uh, is a product of this quote from Dana White on a recent conference call where he attempts to make the case that the John Jones Vitor Belfort fight is a completely logical fight that everyone should have seen was coming. Uh, Quote, 
This is a very dangerous fight for John Jones. For anybody to doubt whether Vitor Belfort should be getting a fight with John Jones is out of their mind. Out of their mind, Chad. Not even saying, hey, I think this is a justifiable fight, although I could see why people might disagree with me. Not saying, I think you're wrong if you don't think this is a justifiable fight. But if you even doubt that middleweight Vitor Belfort has done enough to earn a light heavyweight championship shot at John Jones, you are insane. You are out of your mind to even doubt such a thing, Chad. Well, that is it is his that is his job to, to are sell you these things. Fucking kidding me. Still. You fucking kidding me? Anyway, that that does it for uh, round number one. Round number two starts right now. Round two. Chad, with all the uh, shenanigans and skullduggery around UFC 152 in Toronto this Saturday night, we're not even talking about Joseph Benavidez versus Demetrius Johnson for the UFC's historic first ever flyweight title, nor are we talking that much about Michael Bisping versus Brian Stan for what could be some kind of middleweight contender fight or could ultimately end up not meaning much. Who knows? Uh, but... Now that we're in fight week, I feel, and since we've already beat the hell out of the Jones-Belfort topic, true, I feel it's only fair for us to take a minute and talk about these two fights, which are flying under the radar. First of all, let's start with Benavidez Johnson, right? Now, I keep saying that I feel like, especially given what we've seen of the flyweight so far, this has the, the potential to be by far the most entertaining fight on the card. Agree or disagree? I agree with that. I think, you know, for a long time now, the conventional wisdom has said that Joseph Benavidez was just sort of waiting for the flyweight class to come along. And now we're at this point where we all kind of expect him to be the, the I don't know if you want to say dominant champion, but certainly like the first champion and probably the guy who becomes the man to beat at 125 pounds. Uh, to that end, I think Demetrius Johnson is a little bit of the fly in the ointment. I don't know if he's going to win this fight. I think if Demetrius Johnson wins this fight, I would consider it to be an upset, but not very much of one. But considering what we've seen from both of these guys in the past, I think, yeah, we've got a, a really good opportunity to uh, to see to see some fireworks and to see a, a really exciting fight. And I hope that that holds true for the flyweight class at large, just because, uh, you know, I think that the, your, your 135 and 145 pound fighters have had a little bit difficult time. Uh, becoming big pay-per-view draws, becoming over, I guess you would say, with the fans, which I think is kind of a shame. So I hope that that the company figures out a way to market not only the flyweights, but also the featherweights and the bantamweights in a way that, that can make those guys carry as much weight with the fans, which I think they deserve, as, as, the, uh, as the upper weight classes, the more heavier weight classes. So I hope that we get a good start on that this weekend and we don't see any more majority draws. <laughs> well, I'm glad you brought that up because that was going to be my next point. Talking to Joseph Benavides, and I couldn't tell if he's just trying to do the thing where he's you know, taking lemons and making lemonade, uh, or as Brock Lesnar likes to say, uh, making chicken salad out of chicken shit. But... Uh, he, he said he thinks, hey, it's not a bad thing that we're being pushed out of the spotlight by John Jones, Vitor Belfort, because at least that fight has a lot of generating a lot of attention, a lot of talk. And now maybe more people tune into the pay-per-view and, hey, they come for John Jones and they stay for Joe Benavidez. That kind of a deal. The question I have is, especially if we agree that they put on exciting fights and that we see a, a technical display from the lighter weight classes that we don't see necessarily from heavyweights or even light heavyweights sometimes... What is it? Why do the lighter weight classes have a tougher time gaining traction and becoming pay-per-view stars in their own right? What do you think it is? I think at least some of it is uh, sort of a holdover of a bias from boxing where uh, aside from like Manny Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather, you've, you really saw, at least in America, historically the heavyweights have been a big draw and the, and the lighter weight classes have been somewhat less popular just because I think people have the idea that you're not going to see any stoppages, that guys Oscar are going to hit, hit each other in the Sugar face Ray a Robinson. lot. You really, Sugar Ray Robinson has a <laughs> Jake draw? Jake LaMotta. <laughs> Uh, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you are pointing out the flaw in my logic. I just think that, that the, the overall 
fight watching community wants to see stoppages. And because in boxing, we have this feeling like these lighter guys are just going to punch each other in the face 150 times around and, and there's not going to be any real, anything definitive that, that comes out of it. I think that, that that's, you know, some of that holds over into MMA and that people maybe take a wait and see attitude towards the lighter guys, or they want to, you know, that they, they, they just don't captivate the public's attention for whatever reason, like the bigger guys, bigger guys often do but you know that's just a shot in the dark maybe that's not 100 percent the reason well you know and see that was one of the things that i thought too that it's the lack of finishes maybe that is turning people off but uh i think you could definitely make that case with a guy like dominic cruz who you know his style while uh you know i think it's fun to watch yeah. and uh it's uh impetuous as mike tyson <laughs> might say uh, not going to result in a whole lot of finishes. However, you look at Joe Benavidez, and granted, he got probably the, the easiest draw in this little four-man mini-tournament, but he went out there and finished his fight. And his point when I asked him about it was that, hey, the finishes are going to happen. Uh, you know, here's, here's the quote from uh, when I asked him about the, the finishes. First, he says, there's been, what, seven fights and three finishes, uh, which I don't know if that math is actually right, but that's what he said. Uh, you take any string of like middleweight fights where there's seven fights and three finishes, you won't see people saying, oh my God, can you believe there are hardly any finishes? That doesn't happen. The finishes will happen. It won't happen all the time, but it will happen. That's something that's going to happen at the, at the higher weights, and it happens with us. At the, but the pace of the action, the transitions you see at the lighter weights, uh, I think what he's saying there was that... that Finishes will happen at every weight class, but the pace and the, the technique and stuff that you see, you won't see in other weight classes necessarily. Sure. Uh, so his point that, hey, they're going to finish each other some of the time. I mean, how much do they really need to finish each other for for that to be appealing enough? I mean, look at Jose Aldo. He, he knocked out Chad Mendes. Does that now make people more interested in featherweight? Yeah, maybe it does. I don't know. I think that, that another... Uh maybe another limiting mitigating factor might be that that the conventional wisdom also says that that featherweight and bantamweight aren't really that deep uh especially when you've got champions as dominant as as dominant cruz and and jose aldo um i'm not sure that that's a a, a problem you're going to run into at flyweight though uh at least not immediately just because i i feel like you've you've automatically got a, a really deep flyweight class even if there are names that got that that the general public doesn't necessarily know, you know, uh, you know, when you can, when you can run four and five guys deep the way they can at flyweight right now with, with guys like Ian McCall and, and, uh, the De Silva kid from Brazil, who I think is debuting against John Dodson, uh, next month. Uh, you got a guy like Dodson, you got, uh, you know, uh, Daryl Montague, who's still down at, at, at Tachi Palace, but I think everyone thought he was going to be one of the guys that the UFC brought in as a 125-pounder uh, until he lost his title. Um, I think he'll be there sooner rather than later. I think you're going to have a good crop of guys who are who are exciting and guys who want to finish fights and, uh, you know, a, a good deal of depth at 125. So hopefully they can hit the ground running uh, is something that I, that I want to see and, and establish a champion and then, and then get right into the the business of uh, figuring out who uh, could lead to what I think could be a deep class of contenders. Do you think maybe we just need more personality? Somebody needs to wear a funny hat? I, I, mohawk? I'm hoping to see a pink mohawk yeah. somewhere in the 125-pound class. Yeah. Although you could say Ian McCall has that kind of taken care of for the entire weight class. <laughs> yeah, that's actually, that's actually a fair point. Now, uh, to, to move up the, the weight classes, we go to, to middleweight, look at Michael Bisping versus Brian Stan. Uh, now, here's one where, because of Anderson Silva's current attitude, tough for me to say exactly what is really at stake here. Uh, however, at least I feel like you could call it a middleweight title eliminator. The thing I wonder is, I think Michael Bisping is a good fighter. Mm -hmm. I think he does not get enough credit for being a, a good fighter just because people don't like him personally. Mm -hmm. um, however, I wonder if people look at him style-wise and think, well, while he could fight a lot of these guys close uh, and beat most of the middleweights in the UFC, he'd just get murdered against Anderson Silva. Therefore, why, why waste our time with it? I just think stylistically, people have got it in their heads that it's got to be some wrestler. It's got to be some wrestler who beats Anderson Silva. Let's not even waste our time with a striker who's not known as for being you know, a powerful knockout striker. Yeah, I believe that that perception 
you know, the perception that that Anderson Silva would be just a nightmarish matchup for Michael Bisping, which I think is probably true, uh, uh, definitely hurts him a lot in terms of like the perception of his status as a number one contender or, you know, being quote unquote in the mix, as they like to say. Uh, Bisping also, as an aside, definitely in the running for Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week uh, (laughs) with his... You know, he seemed to, to, to want to beef with everyone except Brian Stan this week with his uh, kind of got into it with, with Benavidez and Uriah Faber. Uh, and uh, also, uh, what else did he say? He said something else that was kind of kind of a little bit out there. I can't remember what it was right off the top of my head, but, but uh, I know that he went after Uriah Faber for kind of uh, getting too many UFC title shots. I'm not, if I'm Michael Bisming, I don't, I'm not sure if, if – quality competition and, and having the UFC do favors for me is a, is something that I want to point fingers at for yeah. to, to other people. Well, I think, you know, when you look at this fight, this style matchup with Bisping and Stan, yeah. and it's a tough fight to pick as far as I'm concerned. Really? I know Bisping is the, is the favorite. I, and I think he should be the favorite. I think that Stan's got power. He, he's, he's got that kind of one punch ability, but I don't know if he has a whole lot else necessarily. Yeah. Uh, I don't think, He's going to win a, a wrestling match, necessarily, Michael Bisping. I don't you think Bisping would be able to take him down, though? I no. Don't... Well, I, I don't think Bisping really wants to take him down. So, I, and I like Bisping's chances to, to get on the bicycle and, and hit and run and, and stick and move all night long. Uh, the thing Michael Bisping said about Brian Stan when I talked to him, here's a quote from Michael Bisping. He's a powerful striker. Is he limited? Yeah, he's limited. I've watched his fights in the UFC or from the WEC up through the years, and I don't see much evolution. Now, that's a, a criticism I think we've heard from Brian's team before. And even Brian Stan will kind of make the, the point that he is not the most athletically gifted dude in the UFC and had a lot, to ground, a lot of ground to make up uh, from his early career until now. He does seem to expect to go out there and win fights a lot more on toughness, the ability to just keep coming at you and keep throwing bombs, which, as we've seen, Chris Lieben did more with that kind of strategy than you'd expect, but... Against a guy like Michael Bisping, that's a tough sell. You know, that's a, that's a tough way to win. Yeah, just stylistically, though, wouldn't you think Stan has a slightly better chance against Bisping than Lieben's uh, game plan of just kind of sprinting at him and throwing that looping left hand that, that Lieben loves to throw that, hey. But Lieben had cornrows for that fight. No, that's true. And he was also on performance enhancing drugs, <laughs> yes. if I'm not mistaken. Uh, the weird part about Bisping is that I almost feel like that loss that he had to Chael Sonnen did more for his reputation in terms of establishing him as a legitimate middleweight threat, middleweight threat than uh, than almost anything else. Um, and and like you said, I'm not sure 100% what he has to gain in a fight against a guy like Brian Stan. Because he he comes in as the betting favorite. I think if if Bisping goes out and 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 wins. I'm not sure if it alters our perception of him any further than what we already have. Whereas I think Stan, you know, definitely has this opportunity to make his case as another legitimate middleweight threat and a guy who is able to put some distance between himself and his own loss to Chael Sonnen. And, and we don't want to think of him as the guy who, who lost to Steve Cantwell yeah. like, what, once or twice. Or yeah. Okay, here's, here's the last question, I think, that before we wrap this one up. Uh, can you envision a scenario where... Either guy wins this fight by any method, and it puts him ahead of Chris Weidman in your mind for the the top middleweight contender. Not in my mind, no. I think I think Weidman is clearly the top middleweight contender. Although they just booked him in another fight with somebody else, didn't they? I thought I think that they that that they that Weidman's got something else on his plate right now. So I mean, like we said during round one, it's it's always a. Uh, it seems like it's always kind of a, 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 an interesting situation when you're trying to figure out who Anderson Silva is going to fight, who he's going to see as a legitimate opponent or or a guy that he's willing to step into the cage with. So, man, honestly, anything, I mean, nothing would really surprise me at this point yeah. at middleweight. Anything you don't even happen. have, it's not even a case where you have to make your, your way as second in line. Uh, you could be fifth in line if the circumstances play out the right way and you get the right phone call. Yeah, I mean, we learned that also the, the, these past few weeks it's, uh, that... Uh, Sometimes the the top 10 list doesn't necessarily matter. That, I suppose, rounds out our discussion of the upcoming UFC 152 card. And that means that we'll be talking, as we always do, it seems like, about uh, John Jones and Dana White and their ongoing feud. And, but uh, as we always do in the third round, we're going to get... A little more philosophical yeah, on it. We're gonna we're gonna branch out a little bit, talk about the bigger picture, and that's in round three, which starts right now. 
A number of MMA's best-known personalities were just saying stuff this week, and among them, two guys who can't seem to get their names out of the headlines. Not that they would want to. Just when we thought the dust was settling on the feud between UFC president Dana White and light heavyweight champion John Jones, it blew up all over again when Jones went on the MMA After Hour with Ariel Helwani uh, this past week to talk about his feelings in the wake of the cancellation of UFC 151. And on the topic of White said, quote, I didn't really look at him as a boss or anything. I just looked at him like a friend, a business partner. And I just thought I meant a lot to the UFC. And they made me feel like a piece of meat, just like a total piece of meat. He just completely bashed me out and my coach. It was just terrible, man. Just terrible. Now, not to be outdone, Dana White appeared on Jim Rome shortly thereafter in the jungle. Do they still call that going into the jungle when you go on Jim Rome? That's what they used to say. I Welcome to the jungle. That was his thing. Like I watched Jim Rome. Anyway, fuck out uh, of here. He went on. He went on Jim Rome, uh, and when he learned about Jones's comments, said, "Quote: I wonder how the piece of meat was feeling when we bought him the Bentley." I don't know. That statement right there just drives me insane. A year and a half ago, nobody knew who John Jones was. Now the kid's a multimillionaire and he's got this, that, you know, a piece of meat. Let me tell you, I know some people who are in some jobs that feel like a piece of meat. And John Jones is far from being one of them. Now, Ben, there's an awful lot to process here. Uh, so let's, let's, <laughs> let's start let's first. Let's breathe for a second let's, here. Let's just start first with, with John Jones's comments. Um, First off, I think when you hear him say stuff like that he feels like a piece of meat, you start to get maybe a little inkling of an understanding as to, A, why he has such a a terrible time in terms of public relations with the MMA community, and B, maybe why his publicist would want to walk (laughs) away as he did shortly before the cancellation of UFC 151. But for me, I think the most unforgivable part of this quote is the part where he says that he thought Dana White was just his friend, which leads me to one wonder if John Jones actually has no idea what kind of social and business uh, construct and relationship he's part in. Because if you don't think, if you think that Dana White is just your friend and not a businessman, I, I honestly don't even really know what to say to you at this point. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I, 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 I'm not disagreeing with you on that point. That does sound like an odd thing to say. It's pretty clear to everyone that Dana White is running shit in the UFC and not, as the reality show stars say, he's not here to make friends. Uh, However, I have heard Dana White on multiple occasions say, we like guys that want to be partners with us. Right. We like fighters that that want to be in business with us and want to be partners with us. You know, that's how they'll refer to to Rich Franklin or when they get mad at someone, they get mad at Tito Ortiz. That's what they'll say or that's what they used to say. Hey, we like guys that want to work with us, that want to be partners with us. So it is kind of mixed messages at times where it's like, hey, work with us when we're asking you to do something you don't want to do. But don't forget that you are working for us at the same time. Right. If you had any question, if you're John Jones and you had any question about what the power dynamic was in the UFC, I think you found out really quick <laughs> uh, when when Jim Rome go where when Dana White goes on the Jim Rome show, and it should be pointed out that to Dana's own admission, he didn't know that John Jones had made the piece of meat comment before he went on Jim Rome. So he essentially got the news from Jim Rome, and his his initial gut reaction was what the fuck, we bought that guy a Bentley. Yeah. So, like, if you're John Jones and you're wondering if Dana White is your friend or if he's your boss and he has a disagreement with you and the very first thing out of his mouth is, hey, man, remember when we bought you that Bentley? (laughs) Like, that should be conclusive proof to you that the UFC did not buy you a Bentley just because they think you're a swell guy. Yeah, in fairness, though, uh, when I totally blow up and get rich... Step one of my my plan as a rich dude is to buy you a Bentley, Chad. And then step two is to hold it over your fucking head for the rest of your life. Uh, Whenever you do something that displeases me, whenever you refuse to uh, drive me home from the country club after I've gotten outrageously drunk uh, with the other rich guys, I will say, hey, Chad, remember when I bought you that fucking Bentley? Then you'll have to do it. No, yeah, you will will have that over me for maybe the rest of my life. (laughs) Yes. 
And God, you know, God, God forbid I go out and wrap that Bentley around a telephone pole <laughs> at five in the morning because well, then I don't even have the Bentley anymore, man. <laughs> and here's the thing, too, about the piece of meat thing. It's one thing for Dana White to when he brings up, hey, people have these other jobs where they really do feel like a piece of meat. Like if you're, you're working in a, in a coal mine, yeah, you, you are a coal mining piece of meat to your employers. You know, you're working in some some factory owned by Mitt Romney. You you are a, a piece of meat at, at that point uh, in the eyes of your employers. Uh, however, it's not as if the UFC took John Jones and elevated him to the level of a superstar out of uh, the goodness of the hearts of Dana White and the Fertitas. Like they just wanted to do this young guy a favor. He's making them a bunch of money too. Right. So we're... It's it's also kind of when we get back to the, what the original disagreement was about was when they wanted to tell John Jones, hey, do this thing. He says no. Uh, then they call a damn conference call. And be like, can you believe this asshole wouldn't do this thing? Now I think again that we've made the point over and over again that was it a little much of the mass, maybe a little unfair to ask to expect him to just do whatever you tell him to do in that situation. Yeah, should he have done it? Probably. Probably long term going to be would have worked out better for him uh, to have stayed on the UFC's good side in that regard and and, and the good side of the fans and, and went ahead and done that. Uh, at the same time, both parties are are simplifying this argument for their own purposes here. John Jones saying, "Oh, I thought I thought we were friends." Dana White saying, "Look at everything we've done for this kid." Uh, both kind of ignoring the the obvious counterpoints to those arguments, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. And I think to that end, to get to the, the, the next Dana White quote that we wanted to talk about during this, this round, um, White had a sit down with a small group of Las Vegas based MMA reporters this week. And on the topic of getting guys to take these late notice fights and finding replacement fighters, essentially the thing that began the John Jones Dana White feud, asking him to to take a replacement opponent on very short notice, and why that is more difficult now for the UFC to do than than perhaps it was five and five and six years ago. Uh, here's here's Dana's quote on that: "The biggest problem is we've got too many rich guys, too many guys that are rich as fuck." It says it says <laughs> expletive, but I assume he said fuck. Could have been shit, rich as shit. Yeah, he could have said rich as shit. Uh, but back to the quote, money is the biggest detriment to the fight business. It really is. Back in the old days when we were just getting going, dudes had to pay the rent. Once the money starts to pile up, you've got some of these guys with a few million in the bank. Getting punched in the face isn't too fucking cool. Uh, but when guys are hungry and they want that fucking money and they just want to get out there and get it and get more and get more and get more of it. Huh. I'm sure Dan White cannot relate to that mindset. Yeah. Now... I mean, it's true that some of these guys, and John Jones is one of them, are in fact getting paid a pretty good chunk of money. But from my view, anytime you've got a boss talking about how his employees are too rich, and that's the problem <laughs> with the industry that... Not he, to mention that, a boss who is richer than all of those employees. Right. I mean, I think anytime you've got a guy who controls an industry saying the main problem that he faces is that his employees are too rich, it's a little bit unseemly. And I think that that, you know, it wouldn't fly for a guy who owns a Burger King, and it doesn't fly for a guy who owns a Major League Baseball team, and I don't think it flies for a guy who, who is the most powerful guy in the MMA world to say that. To me, it's... It's just a, there's something kind of it, to me, it speaks to a more in a more broader sense to how the guys who are responsible for this sport see it. Yeah. Yeah. It is uh, one of those moments where you think, I don't know if you put that poorly or if you put it way too accurately to sum up your feelings uh, that you wish these guys were poor enough that they had to do anything you said just to keep the lights on. You know, it's interesting, though, because I've heard uh Fight trainers, I've heard a couple of different trainers make uh, a similar point before where they say, hey, the thing to do with a fighter uh, when he's in his prime and he's making a bunch of money um, is to keep that money somewhere else for him. To A, keep him from blowing through it mm -hmm. uh, and then having to keep, continue fighting or come back when he shouldn't. Um, and B, because uh, the, the kind of uh, a luxurious lifestyle is incompatible with the Spartan lifestyle that a fighter needs to lead uh, to stay on that edge. And it reminds me of uh, a quote I heard in Dan Carlin's Hardcore History podcast, which I have recommended uh, to listeners of this podcast before and will recommend here again, 
where uh, I, I can't remember what historian that he, he quotes saying this, but that uh, history is filled with the sound of uh, wooden shoes going up the stairs and silk slippers falling down it. Uh, and just to say, yeah, you get up top, you get soft and lazy and, and fat uh, on all the, the riches that you've earned, and then you get knocked off. And that is something that we have seen with a, in, in the, the fight world, uh, not just in MMA, but in boxing, where uh, you know guys get a little too comfortable with their position, they get a little complacent. Uh, I don't know, however, if the answer is for the promoter to find some way to keep them poorer so that they have to take literally any fight. I mean, I think when we're looking at a guy like John Jones, yeah, he's making a bunch of money. Um, he's making it while in the process of making some other people a bunch of money, and he's making it uh, because he possesses a set of skills that is exceedingly rare. Yeah. And he's doing it while putting himself at some risk. So, yeah, he, he deserves some of that money. And we, we, I think we'd all agree that desire, the fighters deserve a greater share of the money, if anything. Yeah, to me, it comes down really to, to whose interests are the most important to you, because I'm, I can't disagree with what he said, especially from a promoter's point of view, that, yeah, now that these guys are making a lot more money than they used to, it probably is more difficult to, to get them to do what you want them to do. And as you said a minute ago, being super rich probably isn't that cohesive to the the what you need to do to be a... Uh, successful professional fighter but yeah what's the alternative yeah to make that statement you know the problem is that guys are too rich really tells you whose interests you're looking after because that's the problem for you (laughs) as a promoter yeah the problem for the fighter used to be that he wasn't rich yeah now that he is rich like that's that's the goal he's reached the goal man so like if 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 the problem with the sport is that the fighters are too rich Good. Which is, by as the way, I'm not the problem with MMA at the moment. It's kind of like uh, an, an NFL coach who, who used to be a college coach being like, man, back when these guys were depending on us for their scholarships and their food, uh, and uh, you know, we knew what, what dorms they were living in and, and could keep a closer eye on them, it was a lot easier. But man, you get into the NFL and you're trying to tell a bunch of millionaires what to do. Uh, it's tough to get them to listen to you sometimes and to get them to do exactly what you say. Yeah, I can understand how from an NFL coach's perspective that would be a pain in the ass. However, I can also understand how the dude who's in the NFL is like, man, thank God I am not a poor college student anymore. This is awesome. Yeah. And can you imagine what the response, the organizational response would be if a fighter ever said, the problem with MMA is that Dana White and the Fertitas are making too much of the money. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm sure that'd go over really well. I'm sure Jim Roman would read that quote to Dana White on the jungle or the chaparral or whatever landscape it is that that he has there. uh, And Dana White would say, yeah, no, that sounds like a reasonable position. I can respect that. Are you out of your mind? You have to be crazy (laughs) to even doubt. Well, that that is probably as good a stopping place (laughs) as we're going to get to today. But before we let you go... As always, we're going to give you some parting shots in the form of just saying stuff. The part of the show where Ben and I both make statements that we are not asked to follow up or support or defend in any way. Because at the end of the day, we are, in fact, just saying stuff. Ben, why don't you lead us off here? What's your just saying stuff for this week? I'm just saying, Chad. You and me, we get some camera equipment in here. You put on a silly hat. I dye my, my hair pink. Yes. We fight each other. Okay. Uh, and then videotape ourselves going about our, our regular daily business, trying to get along as some kind of uh, odd couple here in my house. And then we fight each other again. I think we put that out on, say, you know, a Tuesday, Wednesday morning. We can still get more viewers than the premiere of the season of the Ultimate Fighter. I'm just saying. Wow. Just saying, huh? If we did that, would we have to take all of the books and, and TV media out of here so we have nothing else to do besides yeah. drink and fight with just, each just, other? Just drinking and fighting and staring at each other. And Well, we get the Bible. We can, ha- we can have the Bible. When we fight, is it going to be in an empty warehouse where there's only like three guys hanging around and they're all just going, <laughs> come on, son. Come on, son. <laughs> I thought, no, we'd fight in my garage. I don't really have time to clean it out first, so there are some like wood chips and crap over there. Let's just try and avoid that. Let's make a gentleman's agreement not to take each other down on the wood chips. <laughs> I'm into a gentleman's agreement, sure. 
I'm just saying that Bellator heavyweight champion Cole Conrad retired this week in the words of the promotion to, quote, begin his new career as an agricultural commodities trader specializing in dairy products, end quote. Now, Ben, to me, that sounds like a fancy talk for becoming a dairy farmer. <laughs> uh, I think you're wrong, but go on. <laughs> but... Um, you know what? Good for him. Good for Cole Conrad. Totally. If there are people hating on him this week for doing that, fuck them. Because, you know, he never got into the UFC, but he finished up, I believe, 9-0 and in his professional career. He got in, he made some money, and if, he's a, if there's a guy that has any other option for stuff to do with his life, and he wants to go do it, man, God bless him. Cole Conrad. MMA success story, hands down. I'm just saying. Just saying. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is going to do it for us this week. Uh, you've been listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas from ESPN.com. That's Ben Folks from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com. Next week, we'll try to get it done on time, don't you think? We'll see what we can do. We'll try yeah. to get this bad boy out Tuesday morning like we normally do. So uh, all those people who hit us up on Twitter saying that they were driving to work and going to school and didn't know what to do with themselves because they couldn't li- listen yeah. to us blather on about MMA for an hour and That's change. on me. That's on me, and we will rectify it next week. Have no plans to go anywhere this weekend. So sorry about that. It won't happen again until it does. As for the moment, that's it. We're done. We are out. Look, if being a commodities trader in dairy products sounds like a dairy farmer to you, does trading soybean futures sound like uh, just being a regular farmer to you? Yeah, that's what you are farmers, right? Yeah, Wall Street farmers. Yeah, that's what you